I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we've got someone really exciting. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, this is brilliant. Today we have Ryan McNutt with us. He is... um, a conflict archaeologist. He's also an assistant professor of anthropology at Georgia Southern University, um, which means he has an awesome accent for us to listen to. Uh, director of the Camp Lawton Archaeological Research Project, um, which is an investigation of a Confederate prisoner of war camp. So I'm really excited because anything to do with war um, is interesting to me. So Ryan, hello. Good morning. Well, good afternoon for y'all. Good morning for me. <laughs> How is lockdown, apart from the fact that your two-year-old now insists on being naked all of the time? <laughs> uh, not too bad. Um, we've transitioned to online teaching somewhat seamlessly. Um, so uh, that and countless um, Zoom meetings and WebEx meetings. Um, but other than that, um, it's okay so far. Um, so far. Um, I'd much prefer to be out in the woods uh, doing field work, uh, but that's on hiatus for the foreseeable future. But yeah, other than that, it's good. I suppose you you have to get dressed every day if you've got to do Zoom lectures and stuff, don't you? Uh, Yeah, yeah, uh, semi-professional. Well, top half anyway. Yeah, yeah, at least the top half. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, let's talk about the Civil War, because this is our first proper look at the US Civil War, so I'm really excited. Alina, start us off. So Civil War archaeology, um, how does it get started? Uh, Civil War archaeology and historical archaeology in the U.S. um, is kind of odd. Um, It doesn't really get started until kind of 1950s and 1960s. The National Park Service has started doing kind of bits and pieces of Civil War archaeology with their properties like Gettysburg and Chickamauga, um, and certainly they're doing uh, some stuff at Andersonville. But what really kicks off Civil War archaeology in the States is the incredibly uh, boring passage of legislation. In 1966, the National Historic Preservation Act is passed, and essentially it just says that if you are doing uh, archaeology in advance of a ground disturbing project, um, any project that's using federal funding requires a federal permit or is on federal lands that you basically have to do archaeology um, to mitigate any impact to archaeological resources. Um, funnily enough, because it says archaeology is anything older than 50 years from the current year, it means that historical archaeology explodes up to yeah. this point. 
it's pretty much prehistoric. We weirdly, up to this point, knew more about the prehistoric periods from an archaeological perspective than we did from the historic. So when this gets passed, it creates a huge boom in archaeology. Uh, some of the first POW archaeology of the Civil War in the United States is done at Andersonville, uh, which is a National Park Service uh, property. So because of the passage of this act, they start doing archaeology there. Um, and it means that we start to see excavations of campsites and forts and training camps, uh, properties in care of the NPS, um, and anything that's going to be impacted by things like roads projects, uh, things that require federal permits and funding. So we see this big explosion in historical archaeology um, in general, but specifically quite a bit of Civil War archaeology starts to come to the forefront. Um, so you've mentioned uh, forts, camps, um, what kind of thing, uh, so, and, and the National Park Service, so obviously they've kind of reserved long in advance um, sites where battles are taking place and uh, points of interest. Um, so what kind of things were people finding on early excavations on these sites? Um, a lot of it is um, kind of standard uh, ceramics. Um, battlefield sites, of course, included um, a host of battle debris and detritus. Uh, bits and pieces of personal kit, um, mini balls and bullets, um, ammunition and artillery rounds and that type of stuff. Um, the camps and the forts and the prison camps were interesting because that started providing some of the first evidence of um, concrete access of, of supplies, um, detritus to things like ammunition crates, uh, camp goods, um, things that the soldiers carried that they used out with conflict um, sites. Uh, the kind of really interesting stuff that gets you away from kind of the narrative of the generals and the field commanders and into the kind of lives and experiences of the bloody infantry, for lack of a better term, the mm. common foot soldier, um, the person that's often left out of those kind of historical narratives. It really comes together thanks to Doug Scott in the 1980s, doesn't it? And yeah. uh, the appearance of conflict archaeology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Doug is what kind of boosted um, the archaeology of Civil War sites to a large degree, specifically with conflict archaeology and an increase in looking at the conflict archaeology of the American Civil War. Um, it meant that kind of all these bits and pieces of stuff where people were looking at camps and forts now had a natural home in conflict archaeology. And some of the first uh, research into things like battlefields like Gettysburg, uh, research into battlefields like the Battle of Franklin in Tennessee and the Battle of Nashville started to show up at uh, fields of conflict conferences um, that were kicked off in the early 2000s uh, by Tony Pollard and Phil Freeman of Glasgow University and the University of Liverpool, respectively. And all this stuff kind of started to coalesce um, around this kind of sub-discipline of conflict archaeology. Um, broadly speaking, why is Civil War archaeology important? What can we learn? Um, you've already mentioned an insight into um, the individual um, foot soldier, but they give a very uh, def definite kind of perspective, don't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and with the, the kind of popular perception of the American Civil War, uh, rightly or wrongly, I mean, it's a great documentary. Um, I love the documentary. But the popular public very much has kind of a Ken Burns image of the Civil War, uh, very much kind of a Shokin farewell playing in the background. Um, these kind of really 
um, articulate and um, meaningful kind of letters home. And the Ken Burns Civil War image is very much kind of the Civil War as the last gentleman's war, um, still kind of bound up with honor codes um, and a real gentleman's warfare. And the archaeology and increasingly the historiography of the Civil War is pointing out that that's not quite what's going on. Um, the American Civil War is really the first industrial war. You have aerial observation, um, mass-produced rifled artillery and uh, rifled small arms, uh, transportation through um, railroads. It really is closer to the First World War than it is to anything like the Napoleonic War or even the Mexican-American War. It is very much warfare on an industrial scale. Um, at Petersburg um, and Vicksburg and Cold Harbor, you have huge siege lines with trench warfare, um, countermining, um, huge artillery bombardments, um, and the death toll alone from the American Civil War kind of lays to rest, in my mind, um, the kind of idea of it being a gentleman's war. There's somewhere between 690 to 700,000 U.S. combatant deaths in the American Civil War, which is about approximately around about 40% of the U.S. population between the ages of 18 to 45 died in the American Civil War. It's also and, pretty much bang on the uh, death rate for Britain in World War One. Exactly. And this kind of, the archaeology of the American Civil War, I think, has a large role kind of pushing back against this kind of Ken Burnsian kind of gentleman-like uh, war, as well as um, a couple of good recent uh, works on it that point out that the American Civil War is where we really start to see the birth of things probably like post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, rather, um, a host of kind of mental issues um, surrounding warfare and conflict, um, and just the sheer scope and scale of the death and destruction of large parts of particularly the South during the war. And I think that's one of the importance of Civil War archaeology is that you can get down to essentially kind of ephemeral moments in the past. Um, you can see the trajectory of a single day's combat, of a few weeks' combat. Um, you can track it. You can pull out um, that kind of really much darker nature of the conflict and much more human tragedies of the conflict with Civil War archaeology because it gets you down to, again, the level of the soldier, the level of the common experience. How did you get involved in Civil, civil War archaeology? Um, essentially, Civil War archaeology came with a job at Georgia Southern. When they kind of they posted a job advert and they were looking for a Civil War archaeologist or a conflict archaeologist, and we're a relatively new discipline, so there's not a lot of calls specifically for conflict archaeologists. Um, but I saw it, uh, jumped on it. One of the big things tied into the job post was overseeing the work at Camp Lawton. And I had experience with conflict archaeology from the medieval um, all the way up to World War I uh, during the course of my PhD and later work with the center at Glasgow. Um, and experience with POW camps in um, 
what's now Western Poland uh, with Style of Glue 3. So it was a kind of natural fit for me, at least with a conflict archaeology perspective. So it was a pretty natural segue into it for me. And that's really what got me involved in it and involved in the project. Um, yeah, your main focus right now, you've mentioned, is Camp Lawson. Um, tell us about the site. Why is it such a good snapshot of a prisoner of war camp? So Camp Lawton um, essentially is born in, out of the tragedies of Andersonville um, in 1864. Um, there's about, in July of 1864, um, there are about 100 POWs a day dying at Andersonville. And when um, Winder, who takes command of the Confederate prison systems in uh, Georgia and Alabama, he arrives at Andersonville to kind of take up command of the post. And to his credit, he's pretty appalled at the death toll. He's pretty appalled at the state of the camp. Um, and as a result of that, he starts searching for a way to alleviate the overcrowding. And that's where Lawton comes in. It was designed to basically be an uh, overflow camp to take men out of Andersonville, put them in a bigger area, um, better access to water, potentially better access to supplies. So they established Lawton um, in what is now Jenkins County. They start building it um, July, August of 1864, um, throw up a pine log stockade that encloses 42 acres. It's a massive, um, huge site. Um, they build um, artillery forts around it. Um, they build hospitals. They build guard camps and barrack camps. Um, and they start taking in prisoners in around about kind of um, end of uh, end of August, uh, start of September. POWs start coming in, um, but it's completely abandoned by November twentieth um, when Sherman's march to the sea turns towards Lawton. Um, as a direct attempt to try to free the POWs that are there. So essentially it just gets abandoned. Um, so it's really only occupied for about at most four months before the camp was built. It was agricultural and timberland with nobody really living on it. And after the camp was abandoned, it returned to that. So from an archeological perspective, it's pretty much been sealed beneath the soil without hardly any kind of developmental impact or very little impact and it's almost a perfectly preserved record for about four months um it's really it's very much kind of one of these stopwatch moments the conflict archaeology is really good at getting at where you can instead of looking at you know a time scale of generations which is often the case with archaeology mm. you can get very much a day-to-day -day, um a four-month occupation span um you know how long they're there for, you know when they're pulling out, you know in general kind of who's there, and you can use the kind of material culture tritus that's left behind because it's pretty much only coming from that occupation to really get a good sense of what's going on there, um, what the POW experience is like, the type of things they have access to, um, the ways they're using material culture to deal with being interred, um, and ways they're resisting um, the Confederate authority and power that's keeping them interred and inside the stockade. Can you tell us some of the key things that Lawton is revealing? Sure. Um, there is, Lawton is amazing um, in a host of ways in that it's to a certain extent pushing back on some of the historiography of um, 
POWs in the American Civil War. Um, after um, the war and in kind of studies of POWs um, leading up um, to the last few decades, there was very much this kind of um, assumption in the arguments that basically deprivation of POWs at places like Andersonville and at Lawton was kind of a fairly equal. Um, the guards didn't necessarily have as much access to supplies either. The POWs didn't really have access to supplies. And that's been kind of the historical argument. But the archaeological argument is quite a bit different. Uh, what we're seeing, for example, in the guards camp um, is there's this big debate over how much food the POWs had access to, how much rations they had access to. Um, and what we're seeing from the archaeology of the guard camp is that it really looks like the guards had quite a bit better access um, to food. We've got a host of ceramic plates from a guard encampment, and those ceramic plates show that every single one of the plates has cut marks um, from a knife and fork, which tells us that these guards in the POW camps are getting access to good cuts of meat. They're getting access to cuts of meat that's nice enough to where you have to cut it with a knife and fork. It's not really the kind of meat that the POWs are getting that they talk about in their narratives where they essentially talk about boiling cow's heads and scraping the meat off cow skulls and that's how they get enough meat and it's very much kind of stewed stringy kind of you have to cook it long enough until it falls apart and even then it's pretty chewy. Um, and just comparing those two data points certainly suggests that the guards have access to quite a bit better food resources. And this is supported as well um, from a few other sites. Uh, there's Florence Stockade in South Carolina, and there's an interesting study of um, pig bones from that site that shows that the guards at Florence were getting essentially processed and cut ham hocks that were being brought into the camp um, in barrels. So there's definitely better access to food in the guard areas than seems to be in the POW areas. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a bit um, more evidence of things like shipping crates and um, ration crates and supply crates in the guard areas. Um, there's uh, massive amounts of machine cut nails that are tied directly to specific types of shipping crates, uh, hardtack uh, boxes, uh, ration crates, and the numbers for the guard areas, even though we've only excavated small amounts of the guard areas of Camp Lawton, are massively higher than they are in POW areas within the stockade. So, but, oh, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. No, you go. Uh, on the other hand, one of the interesting things as well is that we're also seeing that it does look like the POWs were also getting more access to supplies that they let on in their kind of post-war narratives and in their diaries. Um, there's good evidence of things that are probably supply crates coming in uh, from the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which are probably shipping things like not necessarily food, but shipping things like replacement clothing, replacement blankets. Um, there's good evidence as well of quite a lot of kind of illicit um, market activity inside the POW camp where the POWs are trading with the guards and it looks like they're getting things um, like potentially alcohol, uh, potentially medicine through trade with guards, extra food items through trade with the guards, um, which is all very much um, 
against the rules. Uh, it's a court martial offense for guards to have any contact or trade with the POWs, but there's massive amounts of material culture and alcohol bottles and things that suggest that despite the kind of court martial offense that this is still going on. So it's kind of a, it's a mix of both worlds. Yes, it looks like the guards are getting uh, better access to certainly food and probably better access to certain types of supplies, particularly if you're an officer than the POWs are, but the POWs are also not as poorly off as their kind of post-war narratives um, would have you believe, which is tied into a host of kind of mental issues and ideas of kind of masculine identity and um, kind of post-war um, perception of people's wartime experience and what they did during the war. I'm just seeing Ashley staggering back to 12 Oaks or whatever it is in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> looking at absolute... Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Rick. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that, and that's very much the uh, the image of Union POWs in the historiography, in their diaries, um, in the things they write, and it certainly seems to be that some of that is tied into justifying their wartime experience in comparison to the wartime experience of battlefield contacts of veterans that were also coming home. Um, in and it's really tied up with the kind of Victorian ideal of masculinity, which at this point is it's not that far removed from today to a certain extent, depending on which area of the world you're in. But it's very much a heroism and masculinity from the Victorian perspective during the American Civil War is battlefield valor. Surrender is unmanly. Surrender is unmasculine. You should mm -hmm. essentially come back with your shield or own it. And these wartime narratives of deprivation and resistance are essentially ways of kind of recasting the POW masculinity of, yes, we weren't in combat. We were kind of sitting in one spot, but that patience and stoicism of sitting there and waiting war out and doing things to try to escape, doing things to try to mess with the guards, um, take advantage of the guards and resist authority however you could, was equally as valid uh, masculine experience and wartime experience as a battlefield one, and just as masculine and just as worthy of recognition 
especially when you start talking about the deprivations from Andersonville and the disease and the death that came through these POW camps. So to, to a certain extent, there's not quite romanticism, but definitely some kind of hyperbole going on with the post-war uh, narratives of many of these POWs. Um, mm -hmm. Especially when you compare, for example, the kind of diaries and narratives that are written for kind of public consumption um, that were published and sold versus the actual kind of day-to-day -day diaries of the POWs, which, to be quite honest, are incredibly boring. Um, it is really just <laughs> uh, like, there's nuggets in there, uh, but you know you'll go through 15, 20 entries, and it is essentially warm today, warm tomorrow warm yesterday, rain today, got my rations. Not a lot of kind of really gripping narratives. Sounds uh, like George the Fist diary for quite a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> the very, weather and what he ate. So Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, there's interesting stuff in there where you can tell um, where they're getting more rations. There's interesting bits in the diaries where they'll talk about um, oh, our rations kicked up. And as, sudden, as soon as their kind of rations kick up, they start talking about more stuff. They're kind of less focused on food and what they had to eat. And they start talking about stuff like being mauling from home or kind of perspectives of the war ending. But the day-to-day -day not diaries that seem to be the most reflective of the experience are very mundane and endearing in their mundanity to a large extent. I find them quite interesting and just kind of looking at somebody's kind of just day-to-day -day experience without kind of the hyperbole and without the kind of idea that this is being written for an external audience, um, yeah. much more honest and reflective. Um, just quickly, tell everyone why um, ci the Civil War um, prisoner of war camps and why America is significant in the whole history of prisoner of war camps. Civil War really kicks off um, large-scale internment of POWs. There's kind of bits and pieces leading up to this. Um, there's um, a few camps during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, Norman Cross in Britain followed some kind of French POWs um, in a camp. But the Civil War really marks the large-scale internment of uh, POWs for the first time in the history of warfare. Um, this is the first time where there are hundreds of thousands of guys um, that are interred in these camps for long periods of time. And it's really tied in, I mean, to, honestly, to some of the um, formative reasons the Civil War actually occurred. Um, at the start of the war in 61, um, there's essentially an exchange program set up. And this gets codified into something called the Dix Hill Cartel, where if you get captured, um, you get exchanged for um, a certain equivalency of ranks. It's a weird kind of currency system where a sergeant is worth like 15 privates and a captive and it's worth like five privates. And you kind of work out that exchange um, almost like a currency system. But these guys are being sent back and forth. In 63, this ends and the cartel falls apart. And the cartel, cartel falls apart specifically because the Confederate Congress issues a resolution that says that U.S. colored troops that are starting to come online in frontline regiments will not be treated as POWs. They will be treated as escaped slaves, regardless of their place of birth or origin. 
they will be returned to their masters if they can be identified. And any white officer leading a U.S. Colored Troop Regiment will be shot on the battlefield for inciting slave rebellions. In practice, it doesn't look like there were any, any white officers that were ever executed, largely because the Union threatened reprisals against um, Confederate officers that they were holding. Mm -hmm. But that refusal to treat um, African-American troops in Union service breaks down the cartel and all exchanges stop. And all of a sudden, you have massive, um, massive numbers of POWs that are stuck, essentially. Um, they have to be housed. They have to be held. Um, around about 420,000 men and women um, were interred over the course of the war as POWs. Um, there's quite a few women that were passing um, as soldiers, um, dressed as men, fighting as men, and quite a lot of them ended up in POW camps. So you have this kind of issue for the first time of thousands of men that have to be put somewhere and have to be kept somewhere. And there's no rules to really kind of govern their treatment. Um, there's no kind of Geneva convention that dictates kind of what kind of medical care they should have access to. Um, it seems to a certain extent, some of the governments try to do their best, but it's hamstrung by a host of things like um, reprisals um, as word of the treatment of men in Andersonville starts getting out um, North um, commandants of prison camps in uh, the Union um, start doing things like cutting rations uh, to reflect what they see as the treatment of their POWs. And this is for the first time in history that it really happens. Um, and you can make an argument that this is what leads to some of the kind of consideration in later wars of how we treat prisoners of war. Uh, what are the rules of warfare regarding POWs? Um, what are the rules regarding their kind of access to medicine, um, what they're allowed to do, what you're allowed to do with them. In terms of kind of POW archaeology, it is incredibly important because it represents um, the kind of nascence of POW camps in history for really the first time. Is Camp Lawton really changing the perceptions of the POW experience in the Civil War? Um, I like to think it is. Um, I think certainly some of the stuff that we're seeing um, I think is serving as a really good counterpoint um, to the kind of historiography of it and also pushing um, some of these kind of ideas of things that we see as very modern um, concepts, issues of kind of psychological experiences, um, issues of how internment is dealt with, um, issues with, you know, soldiers' response to warfare I think it's pushing them back um, further than they have been. Um, where you can see that some of the deaths, almost certainly quite a lot of the deaths that occur in these POW camps, many of them are from disease. Um, many of them are um, from lack of rations, um, exposures. Um, there's no structures built inside these camps, aside from what the POWs can assemble themselves. So they're very much exposed to the elements. Um, but there's also bits and pieces of things coming through about things like PTSD. Um, Chief Surgeon Isaiah White, in his report for Andersonville, said that one of the chief issues affecting POWs was mental depression relating to long confinement and something that he called hope deferred, rendering them susceptible to disease. 
and you get prisoner accounts uh, from both northern and southern military prisons that are constantly mentioning kind of fellow POWs that start to become listless and nostalgic and maudlin. Um, the POWs described that uh, are asleep and they suddenly awake with screaming fits and then fall into deep depressions and just kind of end up sitting in one portion of the camp, just kind of staring off into the distance, non-responsive, almost catatonic. And these are almost certainly describing uh, what would later be described as barbed wire disease, what we probably know now as PTSD. And we can yeah. see some of the kind of, it seems like um, the POWs that managed to survive the camps um, and push back against it, push back against um, these kind of mental depressions by finding ways to occupy their time that we can see in the archaeological record. Um, making craft items, um, engaging in trade, uh, setting up kind of little markets, um, doing anything that keeps them occupied and that they can classify as some kind of resistance against the authority. Um, some of it is physical. Um, there's several accounts of escape tunnels being dug at Lawton and none of them are successful. Um, it's really horrible soil. Um, it's very similar actually to um, Western Poland where it's sand that has very uh, kind of little consolidation. So it's really, really loose and it's just covered over with pine forests. So trying to dig an escape tunnel out of it is almost an exercise in futility, but they're still trying. And it seems to be uh, from the archeology span and from the historical narratives, the success is less important than the act of trying. Um, the act of trying to resist, trying to do something, taking action, seems to be pushing back against these mental depression issues. Um, oh, I just love it. Uh, so you mentioned you've only done, um, especially with the guards thing, a little bit of it. What is there left? Is there, where were you at with Camp Lawton? What does the future hold? Oh, um, let's see. I've got, I'm two seasons in uh, to a 10 season um, fieldwork uh, research proposal. <coughs> so, we need to find some uh, more kind of evidence of guard camps. I'm pretty sure we've got one for at least one regiment, but there's probably anywhere from two to three regiments of guards at Camp Lawton. Um, so we need to find some more of those. We also need to find the hospitals that are outside the wire, outside the stockade. Um, that oh, we're wow. Guards and POWs. Um, that will be a really good indication of, Things like health, um, we're almost certainly going to see associated with those hospitals um, limb pits uh, from amputation. Um, one of the constant diseases that is rampant at both Andersonville and Lawton is um, scurvy. And with scurvy often comes um, infection of kind of any small wound. There's lots of gangrene um, and there's lots of amputations. And finding those hospitals and finding kind of the material culture associated with them and limb pits of essentially amputated limbs will also give us a good idea into the health of kind of POWs at Lawton. Um, I've got a grad student right now um, and she's doing some really spectacular work uh, where she's looking at access to health and medicine um, in POW camps, specifically at Camp Lawton by looking at things like uh, material culture from kind of patent medicine bottles, um, alcohol, um, tobacco, all the kind of kind of folk remedies and what we would think of as non-medical remedies, but which are very much perceived as medicine during the period 
to get an idea on kind of how much access POWs may have had um, to medicine, be it alcohol or calming agents like tobacco or patent medicines or actual kind of medicine. Um, she's doing amazing work with that. Um, she's kind of deep into it right now. So I look forward to kind of see those conclusions. Um, and some of the other stuff that we want to look at as well um, is more excavations inside the POW stockade to look at things like um, ethnicity um, amongst the POWs and how that may have impacted survival rates. Um, the Union Army at this point is not quite a full immigrant army, uh, but there are loads of immigrants within the Union Army. Um, yeah. Irish um, in large amounts, um, but there's also uh, Swedes and Germans. Um, and we know that they're present in Camp Lawton. Um, we've got a host of kind of coinage that represents um, their presence there. Uh, some Austrian Finnigs are um, some coins from Germany. Um, weirdly, uh, an Argentinian real, uh, which we kind of need to do some more research on and find out where that's coming from and how that ended up there. Um, and I also want to um, take a look at some other aspects, things like this. Uh, there's a sutler's cabin that's inside the stockade that we haven't found yet, uh, which will provide a host um, kind of more information and really just kind of more research into the kind of global nature of the war. Um, even though it's an American civil war, most of the Confederacy is still being supplied through Britain uh, from blockade runners um, that are being built and launched from ports in um, uh, from the Mercy side, from Glasgow, um, one of the first blockade, one of the last blockade runners, rather, to come into Savannah was the SS Fingal, uh, who was built on the Govan shipyards um, in Glasgow. And they're bringing in a host of supplies. We've found evidence of that at Camp Lawton, um, where we've got um, sash buckles um, that are in kind of little bronze die stamp buckles that are in two pieces. And they're decorated with uniquely British motifs. It's things like a crown and a portocollis, um, a St. George's cross and a Tudor rose. And these are almost certainly coming in through these blockade runners. And a lot of this material coming in through these blockade runners is ending up in the guard camps, but it's also being traded back and forth into the POW camps. And this is almost certainly where some things like medicine are coming in, um, some things like... Um, pocket watches and buttons um, and things of that nature are coming in and they're feeding into this kind of internal uh, black market of exchange between guards and POWs. And it's very much a global war, or at least a war with global connections. And that to me is, is quite interesting. This kind of ongoing connections with Britain, ongoing connections with blockade runners, um, even when it's at odds uh, with the official position of the British government. I just, I'm going to be in the South next year for a wedding and I'd so want to come hit you up and come look at Camp Lawton. And if you need someone to shovel dirt in a really amateur way, then uh, I'm happy to get stuck in. Absolutely. Uh, my field schools will be, will be, well, hopefully my field schools will be up and running uh, next year. Uh, we've got a spring 2021 field school slated. Um, so we'll be back out there um, and back out there, hopefully looking at some more of this stuff. And really, I mean, despite all the kind of, I could talk about it for hours, but we're mm. still kind of scraping the surface in terms of the archaeology and the story of Camp Lawton. 
it's amazing good luck with it and thank you so much for coming along um and giving us a kickstart on the american civil war and uh, on civil war archaeology it's absolutely brilliant absolutely thanks for having me Join us a bit later on on the pub when we will be talking about the greatest journey in history. We banned existential journeys of uh, self-discovery and all that nonsense. And we banned space because it's just too cool and it would win. It's a marathon discussion, but there's some really, really good stuff in there. Um, I love the winner and I love the one that almost won as well. Uh, Join us tomorrow when we will be talking about the history of sex. We put a panel together with Kate Lister, author of The Curious History of Sex, and Eleanor Yanagar. And we had archaeologist Amanda Charlotte and uh, Terence Christian join us as well, uh, talking about sex from the standpoint of archaeology, history, perceptions, contraception. Hilarious, but it is actually seriously a, a proper historical discussion as well as being an absolute smut fest. And then on Sunday, we bring you dinosaurs. Paleontologist Stephen Broussard talked to us about the rise of the dinosaurs the world before, how they got there, what was there at the same time as them, um, and how they ended up on top, basically. So that's part one. We are going to do another recording with him about the end of the dinosaurs. And also on Sunday, we will be commemorating the 80th anniversary of the first mass transport to Auschwitz as well. So that's over 700 Polish political prisoners taken to Auschwitz on the 14th of June, 1940, and we will be marking that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.